Hello, everybody. Welcome to season three. Ep- Trevor, what episode are we? Episode nine. That's live. <laughs> episode nine of the Professional Insights Podcast. Thank you very much for our sponsors, Brand Boulevard, for doing uh, a bunch of branded uh, stuff um, for That's us. We, um, Sarah, we're, we're going to send you something. We have a branded notebook. It's really nice. My name is Brandon Curry. I'm Jeff Collins. Josh Bond. And Trevor Lindy. We are pretty, we're pretty pumped today. We're pretty pumped. Uh, huge request went in. We got Sarah Ives from the, one of the stars of Pandemic, Netflix Pandemic. If you haven't, uh, if you haven't watched it, shame on you. Um, it actually beats the YouTube one, Plandemic, uh, which is a bunch of hoax. Okay, moving on. Um, Sarah, hi. I will read your bio, okay? Um, Sarah is an immune engineer. She is the lead scientist for the broad spectrum Centivax flu vaccine technology that was awarded a global grant challenges ending the pandemic threat grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Nice. Sarah and nice. her research are featured prominently in the Netflix docuseries Pandemic, How to Prevent an Outbreak. Evidently, I don't think anyone in government watched it previous to this. Released, <laughs> released on January 22nd, 2020, she is an inventor on Centivax patents and the lead author on the Centivax Influenza publication. In 2015, she joined Distributed Bio as an employee number six to lead the Centivax Universal Vaccine Program as a principal scientist where she leads the vivarium operations in Guatemala and leads the vaccine analysis in California. She developed and optimized custom assays, right? Yes. Uh, yep. For high sensitivity quantitative viral neural neutralization and other high throughput screening methods. In addition to the influence of vaccine studies, she oversees the execution of all contract research programs for therapeutic antibody discovery with vague display libraries at Distributed Bio, including over 50 drug discovery campaigns for biotechnology and pharmaceutical companies across the globe. She received a BSc degree in molecular biology from the University of Wisconsin, Madison, where she contributed to published research and development biology in the Basharula Lab in the School of Pharmacy. She then received a PSM degree from the University of San Francisco Biotechnology Master's Program, where she contributed to published research in virology while interning at interning in the Delwert lab at the UCSF Blood System Research Institute. After her master's, she became an associate scientist and project manager at Lake Pharma, where she managed client projects, performed sales outreach, developed custom bioanalytics, immunoassays, and organized the Bay Area Antibody Engineering Symposium in her role of master of ceremonies. In her spare time, if she, I don't know where you have any, she performed research community organization acting as associate producer for the NPR radio show Biotech Nation, hosted by Dr. Moria Gunn at Bio International Convention in 2015 and 2016. Hi, Sarah. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. That was a very, very long intro. I need to make a shorter bio. It's like very. <laughs> It's very, very short. She's there was a very lot of intelligent, very academic. Yeah. Right? So. Yeah. Okay. Where to begin? Um, I, have I, had so, say, I, have, I have so yeah. many questions. How's right. your life changed since pandemic's been released? Yeah. Let's go with that. Uh, Let's start with well, that. I guess my life, I can sort of think of it in two chunks. There's the pre-Netflix release and there's the post-Netflix release. 
Um, <laughs> it's for multiple reasons, more than just the obvious and that people know of me now, but it brought our research into like the center stage and it just happened to come at a time like, let's see, one day before Wuhan went on lockdown. So the world changed that day forever, probably. So sure. the way yeah. we go about yeah. our lives is different. And it's kind of like my mental benchmark of like pre-COVID versus post-COVID, but also just like me being a scientist, just like any other scientist. And now all of a sudden I have like a social media following and, and people looking to me for hope and advice and just like direction, both scientists and non-scientists. And I have people reaching out to me saying like, you know, my daughter wants to be a scientist because she saw you on the show, like you're her role model. And I'm just like, wow, I'm, I, I'm not just like in it for myself anymore. I have to be in it for the greater good. So it's stressful at times and the work has certainly increased, but I, I'm really happy to be here. Well, you're getting recognition, which is really nice. You guys are becoming saviors, more or less. That's what we're looking for yeah. you as, which I mean, is good. Because that's to be. It's a silver lining of the pandemic is it puts people that work in sometimes invisible industries out at the forefront where we start to realize the amazing advances that we have and continue to make in science and technology and how critical those are to the future of not only the human race, but the success of our economy. I mean, our future rests on the ability of scientists to develop effective vaccines and therapies, not just for this pandemic, but for future ones also. So I'm hoping it will help reprioritize how funding and other, um, you know, streams of incentives get distributed so that we can prevent something like this next time. So, well, to take us on the journey, okay, just, we'll, we'll, we'll maybe because I, I watched it right right when it got released on this nice. like i love i i crush documentaries like it's, it's going and especially when you're in lockdown you got nothing but to crush docu crush documentaries so there was a little bit of trending online initially that pandemic that this is all planned and then that netflix released this to, to you know what i mean so can you please when was this film what period who approached who just kind of so people can go that this, so all the tinfoil conspiracy theorists can put their tin hat. Yeah, on. sure. So the production company is called 0.0 .0 Productions. They're a very well-known documentary company. They've made like the Anthony Bourdain shows, like lots of different types of documentaries across all different industries. Um, really good reputation. So they had actually, they had been wanting to do a show about influenza because the general consensus among the, among the research field was that influenza would be the next pandemic and we're about due because typically big pandemic pandemics come every 100 years or so based on, you know, human history and archeological records. And so everyone's like, okay, well, you know, 1918 was the last major one. So we're probably due. It could be next year. It could be in 20 years. We don't know, but it would be good to make a documentary about it. So they were, you know, researching which groups to film and who to feature, and they got recommended to our company, Distributed Bio, by the Gates Foundation, um, because we had a unique approach for making a universal flu vaccine. Um, although we hadn't won the grant yet, we are still just communicating with them initially. And so they reached out to us, and I'm assuming they reached out to other groups making a universal flu vaccine too, and either they said no or they weren't the right fit. I'm not sure, but we were very open. We're like, yes, come to our labs, come research, or come film us while we research. We're totally fine talking about it on camera. 
come down to our animal facilities in Guatemala, which is usually like very taboo. But we wanted to expose the world to what it's really like. It's not like people hurting animals and white lab coats and doing useless research and connecting their brain up to electrodes and frying them or anything like that. It's like, no, we like, I'm a pig farmer. I care about my pigs. I want to raise them to live long and healthy lives. And in the meantime, I'm going to vaccinate them with something that doesn't hurt them so that we can all survive the next pandemic. And we just wanted to bring that like out into the public eye. And ZPZ was like really stoked about it. And Initially, they didn't know if it would be picked up by Netflix or some other uh, provider, but um, about halfway through the filming, I think we knew it was going to be on Netflix. But they filmed us, they basically filmed all of the groups in the show, I think between basically the first half of the year of 2019. So like January through July 2019 is when all the filming happened. Our final filming was in July, about a year ago exactly, when, or from a year ago, meaning like the date that this podcast was recorded in July. Um, that's when we had our final night. We had like a disc, silent disco party and they were filming me like dancing and I wore a belly shirt on accident. Well, not really an accident. I was like, eh, I'll wear a belly shirt. And then I was like, oh my God, I'm actually being filmed right now. And I do not look like a scientist. I have like my two nose rings and my crazy hair and I'm dancing at a disco with my belly shirt. Like, this can't be good. And then they're like, take a tequila shot. And I was like, no. I, <laughs> but then I did because I, I can't really As say no to like that sort of peer pressure. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> was it good tequila? I don't remember if it was good tequila or not. I had to, it, it was just like such a whirlwind to think that I'd been followed around for four or five months and so much of my, research and my personal life had been caught on camera of course I had no idea how much of it was actually going to show up in the doc but I was like yeah sure I'll take a tequila shot on camera <laughs> you're celebrating right I think it's great yeah. it's deserved yeah, it's like yeah, smoking it was a cigar absolutely right? wild it was like surreal having them film me because like I've never really had anything like that before I've done a few like interviews for local news for various things like sci scientific related in my life, but I've never had a camera crew like get to know my dog and get to know, you know, people that are close to me and have them like one inch from my face while I'm putting on my mascara. They even like came to a workout class with me and filmed me like really sweaty and like <laughs> nearly throwing up on a spin bike. <laughs> that didn't go in. It didn't make the documentary. I'll, let's just say that. <laughs> I got a tough um, question for you, sir. Yeah. Um, throughout the, uh, the documentary, Jake makes mention to you wanting to be able, like, as a mandate, provide this at cost for, um, let's say, developing countries. How do you find that that's going to impact your end goal? Yeah, I mean, it definitely sets an additional bar for us to meet that is going to be difficult, but we don't want to compromise the values of our company just to follow the traditional model of pharma. Um, one way that we think that we can actually achieve that is by keeping a small lean operation. Um, one of the reasons that big pharma needs to charge a lot of money for medicines is because it costs them a lot of money to make the medicines. I mean, there's a lot more. And I think, yeah, go ahead. Oops, sorry. And I think the patent, I'm not sure, I think here the patent only lasts for 20 years. 
um, on their product and then the generics could come yeah, in? Yeah, something like that. So I'm not sure if that's, you my wife's a pharmacist as well. So I have a little, little bit of yeah. knowledge of it. I think that's what she had, she had said. I'm not sure if that's, yeah, I mean, there's Same kind of ways you can get around it with follow-on patents and things like that. I'm certainly not well-versed in the patent legal language, but I mean, we, we aren't trying to keep trade secrets here. We basically want to publish methods so that other people can do what we're doing and that we can make this sort of technology commoditized where we can use this same technology we're applying for our universal flu vaccine for other rapidly mutating viruses too, like coronaviruses, like HIV, um, flaviviruses, like de uh, dengue and Zika. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely will be challenging to figure out the additional hurdles to make this available at cost, especially in the developing world. But we don't want to compromise on that value proposition for our company because we just feel that there's so many people that need these medicines and the world will be better off if they can actually all obtain them. We don't want it to be a first world or developed world luxury to be able to vaccinate your kids against devastating diseases. Um, and there's, that's one of the main initiatives of the Gates Foundation. I think that's why we align very well with them is they're still trying to solve the diseases that we don't even think about anymore. Like they're still trying to eliminate polio in Africa and nobody else is doing it besides Gates. So we, we would like to bring flu vaccines into that kind of market as well, where we believe that it's a basic human right and everyone should be protected from a pandemic. Because now we've, we've seen that it's not just certain people that are going to get infected from a pandemic virus. It's, it's the whole world because we're all connected now. Yeah, I, I, I applaud that. That's I, a refreshing stance. I love it. Yeah, that's I mean, you, I, I mean, it. you're also coming. Yeah. You're talking to four people that come from the country of Dr. Banting, who discovered insulin, right? So, and gave it for free to the entire world. To you know, diabetes was was a death sentence for a child, right? So it was it was very refreshing to watch and to hear you guys do something like that. Um, Our healthcare system's a little bit different, obviously, right? So we're very much promotive. Of yeah. It, it will take a lot of coordination between not only our government, but also multinational governments. Like we, all the different governments need to kind of figure out ways to subsidize these kinds of medicines to provide them as a basic human right. Um, but in the meantime, yeah, 100%. but in the meantime, there's lots of nonprofit organizations like Gavi and Gates and other groups that are trying to achieve that sort of goal where we can make medicines that are necessary available to the people that need them, even if they don't make a salary in America. Now, can you touch on just, I guess maybe if you can dumb it down, please. Uh, all right, so you touched on it in the pandemic. So SARS in 2003 was a coronavirus. Yes. So, which is a big misconception because it died out very quickly. It, I mean, not in Asia, but in North America, it just, it, it hit Toronto, but eh, that's about it. Um, what is the difference between SARS and now COVID-19, which is also a coronavirus? Yeah. Uh, along the avian flu was a coronavirus, MERS was a coronavirus, like what, what's different about Yeah, this? so coronavirus just refers to the general family of viruses. It's labeled that way because that family of viruses is 
both genetically similar and also they look similar under a microscope. So their, their DNA is related to one another, although it's different. And also under a microscope, it looks like they have these um, crowns or spikes decorating the outside of the virus, which is why it's called corona. Um, but you can sort of think of it like different species of fish, for example. So you could have a bluegill and you can have a tuna. So a bluegill lives in freshwater and it's small. It is called a fish and, you know, a yellowtail tuna lives in the ocean. And it's extremely large. They're both fish, but they can't breed together. They don't live in the same place and they have different life cycles. So we call them both fish just for like grouping purposes because humans love to put things into categories that they can mentally make sense of, but that doesn't mean that they're related in the way that they affect us. Like we don't eat bluegills like we do tuna. Although I've eaten a lot of bluegills growing up because my dad would take me fishing and they're like greasy and wormy. Definitely not recommended. Um, okay. <laughs> but yeah, so like this, <laughs> the original SARS, it is a coronavirus. It's actually pretty genetically similar to this SARS. So the original SARS is SARS-CoV-1. Um, so SARS coronavirus 1 is just what it's called. This one is SARS-CoV-2 for coronavirus 2. Um, it is probably an evolutionary variant of that SARS, although it also has bits from bat and bits from pangolin and bits from other coronaviruses. So aggregate, it's probably about 80% identical at the DNA level, um, but that can have drastic effects in the way that it interacts with our body. So the new coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, it basically is decorated by these spike proteins. And on one end of the spike protein, there's a region called the receptor binding domain, and that sticks to human cells. And the receptor binding domain of the new coronavirus is shaped differently than the receptor binding domain from the original SARS back in 2002. So that changes the way that it infects human cells and how it can spread once it's in human cells. So it's, it's like the critical difference. And that's why people who maybe survived SARS back in 2002, they aren't protected against this virus because that receptor binding domain, that region of the new spike protein looks different enough that they don't have any immune response. And we've actually never seen a coronavirus like this before in our living memory, which is why every single person on the planet is susceptible. Now, can you address um, why are scientists finding it in the sewage systems of Europe? Um, they're finding traces, or I'm gonna say this wrong, so just correct me. I'm, I'm, I'm the numbers guy. So uh, like something like a DNA trace in the feces of, 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 of humans, basically stating that this has been around for a while. Just Wuhan was the perfect Petri dish, I guess. Like how, what, what, yeah, how we, it's, right? it's possible. So one of the spooky things about this virus, which makes it extremely unique in terms of viral pathology is that it infects a lot of different human tissues. We've been finding it obviously in the lungs because it binds to the ACE2 receptor on human uh, lung tissue, but there's also ACE2 receptor protein on normal human cells in other areas of the body. Like it may 
be infecting potentially the gut, um, cardiac tissue, and also where it's infecting may not be where it ends up kind of like getting collected. Like that's, I think, why they're able to collect it from feces is it congregates in the gut and then we obviously um, get rid of it there. But to me, it's unlikely that there was no SARS-CoV-2 at all. And then one day somebody ate a bat and then all of a sudden like 10 people died. Like there's usually like a gradual intermixing. So the way that like a zoonotic transmission works, and by that I mean a virus jumping from animals to humans, which is one likely way that this happened, is that first it's circulating within animals and random mutations arise that allow humans to become infected, whereas otherwise they wouldn't have been. So usually it will go from animal to human and sometimes, and then it's usually dead. Like once it's in human, it can't transmit anymore because the set of specific random mutations aren't suitable for further transmission. But in sometimes in with certain, you know, selection pressures of the environment or whatever, it can jump back from human to animals and then it can genetically change again and then go back to animals and back to humans. And sometimes once it goes from animal to human, it can then go from human to human. That's a lot more rare. Um, but even if it's a one in a million event, if there's enough humans getting it from the animal, even if it wasn't very pathogenic, eventually you just need that one transmission event where one series or one one series of mutations or one mutation arose so that it was more evolutionarily fit to jump from a human to a human instead of just human to dead like the virus just dies out so probably some combination of those things happened where it could have been circulating between bats and humans for a little while although it wasn't very virulent um, but at some point it gained the right set of random mutations so that it could pass from human to human easily i think that given the stories we've heard about you know china not being incredibly transparent in how it started and who were initially infected and you know those rises in pneumonia related deaths that weren't originally attributed to coronavirus yeah i think it's absolutely possible that it was circulating before December, maybe before November or even earlier. Um, that kind of thing, it, it will be hard to clarify. I don't know if we'll ever know the answer, um, but I think what's important is that we can track right now how quickly it's mutating and spreading so that it can affect how we will make new medicines and design the medicines that are currently in progress. I think like laying blame I mean, although it does serve its purpose to kind of whip everybody back into shape and hold them accountable, at the end of the day, the blame game is not going to elevate us to stopping the pandemic. So I think that from here, we just need to take the sequences that we have and find a new path forward. Try and figure it out. How are you finding the cooperation with all the other scientists? I heard it's supposed to be like a global cooperation going on to try to push this forward. Are you finding that pretty good? Yeah, I mean, there are downsides and upsides to it. I think the upsides are that we can collect and share information at a lightning speed pace compared to where we were before. Like if you think of the SARS outbreak, it took us months to just sequence the genome of the virus. And if you think about 
the influenza pandem pandemic of 1918, the sequence wasn't known until decades later, um, like nearly half a century later. So just like with every generation, we have all these new tools um, at our disposal and we are really enjoying the, the golden age of biotech right now where we were able to sequence, and by we I mean the scientific community, we were able to sequence a genome of this virus within hours of it being isolated and sequence multiple variants of it isolated from different people and confirm the results and then all the information was made publicly available so people could immediately start researching vaccines and therapies. And that's just been like totally mind blowing to think that even 10 years ago, we didn't have those technologies. And also just the way that we can discover drugs and optimize them now is just so much more efficient for safety and efficacy. So that's really good. And also just like, there's kind of been a shift, I feel like since the pandemic started and the way that scientists are sharing data and what's deemed acceptable. Cause I mean, you know, from the Netflix show, there's this lengthy process of submitting a paper to a journal to get your publication in. And it's very, it's very old school. It's essentially done the same way it's been done in Europe since like the 1800s. And it's good to have like peer review, but there also needs to be some idea of like urgency where like people want this information to know what to try and what to not try. And with the advent of the coronavirus research, there's articles being published daily on BioArchive and MedArchive, which are these like new new-ish online databases where you can do preprint. Yeah, so before your paper is officially in science or um, like PNAS or Nature or any of those journals, you can put it on there first. So other scientists can see your work and they can copy it and they can reproduce it and they can read about it and they can write you and say like, hey, I also found this, um, which is like months or years faster than what it normally is. So that's been really good. But I mean, those are like some of the upsides. I think the downsides is that it isn't as collaborative as I would have liked. Um, I mean, the biotech and pharma industries, they're just like any industry where you have competitors in the market and everyone yeah. wants the fame and the recognition of making the cure. And there's only so much money to go around and there's really not that much money to go around considering how our governments allocate money to other things that aren't related to health or science. So, yeah, basically, yeah, I'd imagine there's a boost in, in, in funding after after COVID started, right? There must be a boost. From, no, not huh? really. Huh? I mean, there's a little bit of reallocation for government money, but the thing is, like, so <laughs> obviously, I'm a little bit biased in my opinion because I work for a small startup biotech. Hmm. But big pharma, they have the money to just barrel ahead with manufacturing and clinical trials, and they have lobbyists in government to get these gigantic government grants that are that are being allocated towards science but they're kind of not really considering the little fish in the big pond they're just going after the people that presumably pay them and have lobbyists and have like you know produced medicines with them before so being a small company it's actually really hard to attract the attention of the FDA and of BARDA and DARPA and the HHS and all these groups because while they do have some funding set aside for coronavirus, that funding is, first of all, like constantly changing because of the current administration. And like, is it even available? I don't know. But it's also just going to the big names that um, can produce these things faster. Whether or not those drugs will ultimately be the best drugs to use is um, 
we don't know yet. I think that like, for example, the drug that our company is making, a monoclonal antibody for COVID against the receptor binding domain, it's ultra potent, it's a great neutralizer, um, but it's like, everybody's clawing their way to the top and fighting for very limited funds that could disappear at any moment given the um, tumultuous political climate. So it's a little less collaborative than I would have expected and I would have hoped for. Um, but at the end of the day, I think the competition is healthy. Um, like I'm a natural competitor, N not a natural athlete. I'll just say that. <laughs> I was very mediocre at sports, but I'm extremely competitive at everything. And I kind of like <laughs> And you like the stage. Yeah, I do. But I like that competitive <laughs> aspect of like, because I feel like it elevates everyone in the competition to a higher level. If everyone knows I need to perform 15% better to even compete, then... Brings the like, best out of you. Yeah, exactly. So in a way, I don't mind it. I just kind of wish that it wasn't so um, like kind of like institutionalized where like it's this company versus that company versus that company and then like the new people have to like claw their way up and all that and yeah and, yeah. and also like the government funding is just slow to get you go through months and months of writing grants and then you don't hear back and then they change their minds and sometimes you get it and yeah it's been a little bit frustrating but um so the yeah. grant that you guys got on netflix how long did it take you to actually get it after you got approved for it Oh, um, so that actually wasn't through the government. So that went a lot faster. That was through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, as you guys know from the show. And they are a nonprofit and they're a, a private um, company, obviously run by Bill Gates. So while the application process was a little bit long, it was more like talking with them, like, should we apply? Are we the right fit? And the actual like writing the application took some time, but it didn't take very long. Well, actually, you know what? It took like three months to hear back. So that is, I guess, longer than I would hope. But at the same time, they need to make sure that they're vetting the best candidates mm -hmm. and they're reviewing these like crazy long applications. And they really take a deep dive into the science that each group is presenting to select the best of the best because they don't have unlimited money either, and they definitely want to focus their efforts on the groups that have the highest chances of success. So the fact that we were selected is just like so... It's surreal. It's got to be a good moment. Yeah, it was exciting to watch. Yeah, it was amazing. Hey, Sarah. What, being someone who works, obviously, very intimately with vaccines, what do you, what's your opinion on um, the reality of having a vaccine for this coronavirus, uh, COVID-19? you know, say within a very shortened time frame. Yeah, I'm actually more optimistic this week than I was last week. Um, so like about a month ago, there was a time, like I saw some articles saying that the FDA was making a statement that the bar for approval would be 50% efficacy. And I was like, oh, yikes, that's I mean, the, and the rationale was, well, the flu vaccine is 50% effective. And I was like, okay, well, the flu vaccine sucks, which is why hundreds of millions of dollars are being poured into making a better one. Um, and the mm -hmm. flu vaccine will do absolutely nothing if we have an influenza pandemic because it only works seasonally. Um, so I just, I, I felt like perhaps they were just saying that because they were getting some preliminary data in from the the major companies that are making a, a coronavirus vaccine. And I was like, oh no, maybe they're not working. Um, but I think that that was just like a very conservative statement by the FDA, because it, 
now the three main players um, who are making vaccines have just released some um, clinical trial data that we've been following really closely, um, like Moderna and BioNTech and also the Oxford group in the UK. And it looks like they're all showing preliminary efficacy, um, which is super promising. Um, it's, it's really the best case scenario. I think, so there's a lot of hurdles. They still need to prove, so it does look like the vaccine elicits antibodies against the virus, which is ultimately like what we need. Um, and it looks like at least some of the groups have already shown that those antibodies not only are capable of sticking to the virus, but also neutralizing it, which basically means like neutering the virus so that it can't actually infect cells, which you need. If your antibodies like stick to it, but the virus can still infect you, then it's kind of pointless. Um, so, so that's good. So there's some preliminary efficacy data. I think we still need to figure out how long that protection lasts. Um, I'm cautiously optimistic. We know that it lasts at least, well, you get the most protection so far at like day 28. I think longer studies are necessary to determine if we might have six months, a year, more protection. Ideally, it's lifelong. And, and then also with vaccines, you just, those trials take a long time because you have to make sure they're super safe. It's kind of like interesting, like one of the arguments from the anti-vaxxers is that like vaccines aren't tested for safety and that they're just like willy-nilly thrown out and like you can inject anything. But it's like literally the opposite of what is true. It's like vaccine studies take way longer than studies for any other medicine. They can take like more than a decade of tracking people and tracing them and symptom checking and seeing if they get sick or not. They're extremely safe and well-vetted. And we are, I mean, obviously there's going to be a fast track to get this pushed through, but like in general, vaccines are heavily monitored for a very long time. So I think like the biggest hurdle will be um, manufacturing enough doses and also being able to administer them quickly and inexpensively. There, I've heard some really scary rumors that some of these companies might not be able to um, provide it like for free or for very inexpensively because of you know, the cost of goods and all that. And it's just, I hope that that's not the case. So I, yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll have a vaccine either ready at the end, like approved by the FDA at the end of 2020 or in the first half of 2021. Um, but that brings a whole new issue of how do you roll that out to the entire American population and the global population? Like how long will that take to get herd immunity, given that some people can't get a vaccine because they're immunocompromised or they're too old for it to work. Some people won't get a vaccine for reasons that we don't need to go into today. And then some people <laughs> can't get a vaccine because, you know, it's like voting. Like you can't take off work or you don't have money to pay for it. Or you don't have health insurance. So all those groups combined, I'm just hoping that enough percentage of the population can get it and that the vaccine is above you know 70 80 percent efficacy so that we can get herd immunity so there basically there's a lot of issues that need to be addressed first but we're on the right track and i feel like where we are now is where we want to be you think those three companies Perfect. that are, are are the most far along are actually sharing data at this point or do you think it's a race to the the finish oh i don't know but i bet it's a i bet it's a race i bet oh, it's yeah, like the kind quiet. of race where you like put on your fastest running shoes <laughs> and like you you just like, yeah. Yeah, that's too it's, bad. It's a race. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. Yeah. Commerce. For you. Um, so with, with everything that's 
going on. So, I mean, Bill Gates stepped onto the TED Talk stage around, I think, 2015. And he famously wheeled out a, like a nuclear barrel of, of waste, right? And that was his whole thing is most people think that the next war, and he said, no, the next war is going to be a pandemic. And I, I was enthralled on that TED Talk, but obviously no one watched it. No one took him seriously. Are you seeing, notwithstanding the, again, the, the, the people who, are, who think this is a, a, you know, something planned, um, that Bill Gates planned it is one of the memes. Um, if humans uh, could be that smart, I'd just be super I impressed. Know, really? Like, give me, I mean, Bill Gates is smart, but he's not. And one meme was basically like, I wonder how Bill feels. People are creating memes on the very computers that he created. Like, it's just kind of like, you know, and on the very social media platforms that he allowed to take place. But um, are people starting to listen to you now? Like, are, 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 are you, do, have you seen a shift yeah. in politics? Um, a little bit. I think that from here on out, there will be continued and enhanced funding towards STEM and biotech and um, like health related, like early research and discovery. At least that's what I hope because it's this pandemic has obviously set a precedent that we need that and we were caught flat footed. So having those tools like to help us earlier on will help. Um, but yeah, I mean, I remember watching that TED talk and Bill Gates said it is something like it'll be not missiles, but microbes that cause the next yep. world war and the next like something like human suffering. And he's right. Like he was absolutely right. Not that missiles and various like, you know, um, violence don't cause a lot of issues and a lot of deaths. They certainly do. I'm not trying to minimize that at all. But um, we, I mean, we're in an overcrowded world. We're destroying the environment. We have too many people living in close quarters. Um, like, yes, we have advanced sanitation in the United States, <laughs> but not everywhere. And with... Right. It's something. Are, are we? Have we met eight billion people in the world yet, or are we? Are we under it right now? We're under eight. I, we're definitely just. Under we're close. Yeah, so, so we're close. I mean, we're going to continue to expand, and we're going to have to continue getting rid of natural habitats and forcing people to live closer, and you know, destroying the normal ecosystems, which gives rise to more possibilities for animals to come into contact with humans in a non-natural way. So this sort of thing is going to keep happening, I think. It's kind of like the climate, um, it's not a climate debate, it's just the climate facts where, you know, we are going right. to, exactly, we are going to experience these climactic events at um, frequencies that we haven't before, you know, like more tornadoes, more droughts, more hurricanes, um, you know, more rainfall, basically like more of everything that is bad because the climate is changing for the worse. And I feel like pandemics are going to mirror that where there's just more opportunities for disease to spread. Um, and this was just example number one, but there's going to be more in the future. And I don't know when that will happen, but that's partly why I'm so passionate about continuing this work on our universal flu vaccine is <laughs> that's still the likely next candidate. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So let's go with, I, I want to go with that. So in, again, in layman's terms, yeah. can, if I can try to remember 
I think it was episode one yeah. or episode two, where you guys drew on the whiteboard. Your your um your business partner. Jake. I forget his name. I Jake. Thank you, Jake. Sorry, Jake, buddy. Sorry. Um, and Jake loved the curly hair. Awesome, love it. Um, so he drew on a whiteboard, like, or you did. It was you're gonna take DNA from the Spanish flu, and then you're gonna take DNA from like H1N1, and then you're gonna take DNA from another thing, and you're gonna try to get bits and pieces and put it all into one vaccine because they're distant relatives of each other. Did I say yeah. that? Like, that's the way at least I digested it in my head because I try to dumb it down and think about yeah. it, right? Yeah, that's that's essentially it. Is we since we can't predict the exact future, obviously, and we can't predict the exact strains of influenza that may arise, including pandemic strains. We want to train the immune system to be able to respond to any influenza that might show up. And we can do that by forcing it to only focus on the parts of influenza that don't mutate from year to year. And then by doing that, it then is basically ignoring all the parts that do change. You can think of the influenza virus. It's, it's a, you can think of it like a sphere and it's decorated with these, um, like spiky things. I actually heard in a recent podcast, someone was explaining it like, uh, like broccoli, which I thought was an yeah. amazing analogy because broccoli has a stalk and it has like that head and the head is usually larger and there's a lot of surface area. So if you think of the, a sphere being coated with little broccolis, the immune system is going to see the head of that broccoli and there's lots of surface area for it to latch onto. It's just like, it's really easy to make an immune response to the broccoli head. It's a lot harder to make an immune response to the stalk or the part where the stalk meets the virus. So one of like, the key parts of our vaccine is figuring out how do we make sure the immune system doesn't even see the head of the broccoli and only sees the stalk. Um, that, that, yeah. Good explanation. And that approach, like we certainly did not come up with that approach. There are dozens of other groups that have published papers on ways to target the stock instead of the head of the protein, which is called hemagglutinin. Um, and there's lots of interesting <laughs> engineering tricks you can use, but they all involve making Frankenstein versions of the broccoli. Um, and some have more success than others. Some are really promising. I think some approaches with that are like even in clinical trials, like in phase trials. Um, but ultimately, when you create a Frankenstein version, it's just yet another thing that the immune system hasn't seen that doesn't look like nature, that doesn't look like the future influenza virus. So we've actually figured out a way, which you can definitely read all about in the paper that will be published soon, to use native. So natural hemagglutinin or like the broccolis, but put the blinders on the immune system so that it completely ignores the head. And it goes after the yes. stock, killing, killing yeah. the root. Yeah, so the stock usually, the stock is largely conserved from year to year and strain to strain, even across um, like seasonal and pandemic strains. There's certain areas of the stock that are mostly unchanged. Like, 98% identical from 1918 wow. through 2009. It's just the mystery has been, why do we miss? Like why, if those sites exist, why do we miss? 
And that's also another really cool part of our paper that's going to be coming out is we've now applied computational biology to quantitatively assess why vaccines miss and why we hit the broccoli head and not the stalk. Um, and we have like, you know, all the numbers to back it up and fancy formulas, and even one of those like integral signs that you saw back in calculus in college. Yeah. Like I yeah. was, I can't tell you how stoked I was to see when we were, we we're like, you know what? The best way to actually make this would be with an integral sign. And like the little Greek, what's it called? Yeah. The sigma. sigma. Isn't sigma. We put that in our formula because yeah. it's like, well, that's actually the most concise way to wrap this up. <laughs> it's like a childhood dream come true to actually write a math formula. <laughs> that's like Sorry, it. I'm just nerding that's out. Awesome. That's like yeah. it. No, no, that's it, all We're right. just really excited because we've clarified a mystery in virology and immunology, which is why do vaccines fail against some viruses? And we're super excited to be publishing that soon. We should do a follow-up podcast. We can get super into the numbers if you guys would like to. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah. You're going to the UK, Yeah, so, hang on. I'm getting a <laughs> slash. <laughs> okay, we're good. I was, got a ping. <laughs> okay. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah, so at the end of the show, we were talking about how we got it, we got a really good immune response after just three shots. You know, first of all, I just have to say, I've gotten literally hundreds of people reaching out to me and saying, I don't care if your vaccine is seven shots. If it protects against the pandemic, <laughs> just give me seven shots. Like, heck, I'll get 10. I don't care. <laughs> and like, if it works, it works, right? <laughs> so it's actually something 100%. I hadn't thought of. It's just that, like, you know, you need more doses, you need more manufacturing, and there's like, both studies are a lot longer. So it's definitely like a headache, but you know, I, technically we have a working flu vaccine that should prevent against future pandemics. It just takes seven shots. Um, You're just trying to make everybody happy because we want the most yeah. for the least. Like the in a way, I am kind of like the anti-vaxxers in that I want as little vaccine as possible, but it's not for exactly the same reasons. Um, <laughs> it's more slight difference yeah, you know, like and yeah exposure to less vaccine additives and adjuvants might be better in the long term um i don't think we know that but if we can get it down to one shot that's definitely better i think than seven um so yeah we got it down to three where they have the same response in pigs that are able to again neutralize the virus like neuter the virus so it can't infect um cells anymore um, and with the study in the UK, that was actually supposed to start in April, but because of coronavirus, they had to shut down. So right now I'm coordinating, I'm at, we're actually going to run a larger study at three different institutions to try to get the same, see if we can get the same data. Cause we want to make sure it's like ultra reproducible and we're going to run it in pigs and in ferrets. Um, we're going to run, yeah, we're going to okay. run six total studies across three different institutions and we're testing some of the exact same studies at like multiple groups and sometimes like some differences to try out other variations where other people have like other expertise and capability. Um, so this is all outsourced and we basically need to make sure that it works in their hands. And what they're doing differently is um, they're actually using live virus on the animals. So in Guatemala, I didn't have any live virus. I, we just vaccinated them with inert protein. It's non-infectious doesn't do anything, but then we draw their blood and check if they have antibodies against the virus. But these studies are going to give the ultimate test of does it work, which is nice to know, um, obviously necessary. 
So they're going to get our vaccine and then they're going to expose them to an animal that is sick with influenza. And then there's going to be obviously like positive and negative control groups, but it's the ultimate test is does the vaccine protect against influenza? And we're, so that is supposed to start, I mean, hopefully within the next, hopefully by the time this podcast airs, it will have already started. So I'm basically wrapping up all the paperwork with the Gates Foundation and the final study designs with these groups. And we're trying to do a shot and a boost. So kind of like, um, uh, okay. I think it's like yep. tetanus. You guys twin ricks. We had twin ricks, I think, where you've got to get it. And then 10 years later, you have to get, or tetanus exactly. you have to as well. Ten, yeah. Ten so later. most vaccines are the most efficacious with a shot and a boost. It's actually pretty rare that a vaccine would have really high efficacy with just a shot. Um, I believe most of the groups making coronavirus vaccines are also doing a shot and a boost. It's called a prime boost or just two immunizations. It's the same thing if you were to get like a hepatitis A vaccine or HPV or tetanus. Um, So that's our goal is to basically dial it back from three to two. And to do that, we're trying different like vaccine formulations and also different adjuvants. Like there's an oil and water, there's a water and oil and water. Um, things like that that are like really well established and safe, um, but also could provide a little bit stronger immune response. So that's what we're starting to do. I can't say that it's been easy because of, you know, coronavirus and things shutting down. Also, we've had obviously a lot of our attention focused on our COVID therapeutic, but I have not lost track of my goal, which is get this influenza vaccine developed as soon as possible because we just don't know when the next pandemic will happen. But maybe you choose ferrets this time. You got pigs I remember from the show with the cool names, but what was ferrets this time? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting because for almost all drugs, the general course of testing is test in the lab, like in plastic, and then you test in mice, and then you test in monkeys, and then you test in humans. And I do get a lot of people asking me, like, now that I'm like a known scientist, they're like, why can't you just start testing on humans and skip the animal testing? Well, the problem is sometimes drugs that you make in a Petri dish have very unexpected effects on a whole system. And it would be horribly unethical to just start injecting humans with the potentially lethal drug with side effects that you really have not characterized. Um, So a lot of drugs are weeded out in the mice testing phase, not because they kill the mice, but because they just don't do anything. Like they just don't work. Uh, Probably more drugs do that than anything. Only like a small percentage are effective. And of those, some of them have toxic side effects. So only the best of the best move on to monkey studies. And monkey studies are primarily looking at, again, safety and toxicity. They need to look at Um, you know, how are their liver enzymes? How are all their blood like factors? And they want to make sure that those monkeys are healthy if they receive it for a course of eight weeks or whatever. Um, and, And sometimes there can be efficacy data in a monkey as well, depending on the disease model. But the weird thing for flu is that monkeys and mice don't get flu. They don't get flu like we do. So that they actually make terrible animal models for testing influenza vaccines. Because if you vaccinate with them with flu and then you try to spray them in the nose with live flu, they just don't get sick. So I'm not really sure of the historical reasons of how ferrets got chosen, but somebody figured out 
Yeah, somebody figured out the ferrets get flu and they get flu just like humans do. They get sneezy, they get a fever, um, they don't eat, they're lethargic. Um, it's, and also their lung pathology. So the way the influenza infects the, the upper respiratory tract and you know, can cause secondary infections like pneumonia, it's all very similar in ferrets. So it turns out that they're a great animal model and the FDA actually requires ferrets. They, that's the only animal model they require is ferrets. And then once you've proven that your vaccine is both safe and effective in ferrets in preventing influenza, then you can start human clinical trials. Huh. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah. And the it's reason we're, we're doing it in pigs though, because pigs need flu vaccines. Like pigs are going likely going to be where the next human pandemic comes from. So if we can get the pig you know, like the pig industry vaccinated, then there's a less chance of that zoonotic transmission of pig flus jumping to human and then spreading between humans if we can kind of quell the virus in the pig, while it's still in the pig population. I found that interesting. Now, I, saw, I sent you an article, or I sent Melissa an article, um, uh, about the CDC article about the WHO in the bureaucratic organizations of the WHO. And, I, and I, I applaud you in a way that, you know, as a scientist, you're, you know what, just head down, let's just go to work. Why blame anybody? Like, my job is just to solve the problem. So I, I can appreciate that. Um, but as someone who's not a scientist, um, who's also follows politics, I can play the, play, the, the blame game. Because as, soon, as early as March the 3rd, March the 4th, at least up in Canada, we were being told, don't worry about it. Go on your March break vacations. It's not going to come to North America, you know, yada, yada, yada. And there was multiple failures along the way. I read that article um, about the WHO. Now, I do not agree with uh, President Trump's pulling out of, although it doesn't take effect until 2021. In which case, um, you know, most likely the, there might be another president and you might get re-enrolled again. But my question is, is does, did that article have some fact into it? Is that what you did? Is that what you saw on where the failures was with the WHO? I mean, I, I don't get into the conspiracy theory of China was buying out the WHO, but I do believe that the WHO didn't do their due diligence enough. I, I don't know. What, am I wrong? Yeah, I, I, just I think there's no easy answer. It's obviously more nuanced than just taking a black or white political or red or blue political opinion. Um, yeah. My interpretation of that article and also like recent articles I've read about the Trump administration wanting to pull the U.S. out of the WHO is that so the WHO is this behemoth organization. And we, we all know that large enterprises and organizations, they act slow. There's a lot of bureaucracy. Um, sometimes decisions aren't made in the best interests of the public or the people that would best benefit from those services because of like complicated reasons. So yes, they were slow and they probably didn't give the best advice early on, but they were working with the information they had and like how I think how their institution was organized to like make and implement decisions. So there were definitely issues. Um, but the, my interpretation of like the U S trying to pull out of it is kind of like, 
what was that one act when in the, I think it was the Bush administration, was it the Patriot Act for schools? Yes. It's like yep. there were issues with public schools. Um, you know, inner city schools were underperforming on standardized tests um, and other issues like that where, you know, there's a lot of differences in like the region and the way that curriculum was performed and how America was doing compared to other countries. So there was the Patriot Act. And then if schools like didn't conform or didn't do this strict set of regulations that the government deemed was necessary, then they got funding pulled. It's like, well, if, if you chastise a, a broken system, like, yes, there is a problem with these systems. It's not like the education system is perfect at all, but like further revoking the, um, like the funding and the things that the system needs in order to change isn't really solving the problem at all. And I, I mean, many would argue that because of the Patriot Act, schools have actually gotten worse instead of better. And the schools that need the funding the most have actually suffered the most. So yeah, it's, it's like, if you have like a bad kid and they did something naughty, it's like, yes, objectively they did something naughty, but like, putting them on a timeout for the entire day and not giving them dinner is not going to teach them like that their actions hurt others and how they could act differently next time. And I'm not saying that the WHO did something wrong or anything like that. It's just that the institution as a whole maybe is not well equipped to deal with modern pandemics at the speed that we expect today. I mean, it was an organization founded what after like world war two when there was like a leadership vacuum for international health. So it was created out of necessity in a generation that doesn't necessarily translate to the medical needs of today. And any, anything where there's a bunch of governments involved is going to be slow moving. And it's going right. to be heavily politicized and you know, the, per, the people who pay the most money have the most influence. Ironic. You got one government that's gonna move slow. Can you imagine lumping a few of them? Yeah, together, exactly. Right? And, <laughs> I mean, the U.S. is the majority funder of the WHO. So in a way, you could blame the U.S. for the way that the WHO functions. I I know it's a lot more complicated than that. And like different donors like can have a lot of influence. Influence. But yeah, yeah. I, I think overall it will be a negative that we aren't funding the WHO anymore because although it is maybe a flawed behemoth institution that has particular things that could be improved upon, they still improve the lives of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people each year that don't have access to care and medicines that they would have otherwise, Um, especially with things like the Ebola outbreak and um, things in the developing world, like preventable diseases that we don't even have to think about. The WHO just like takes care of those in the countries of the world that we don't even remember exist. So I think having that self-centered view of like needing to chastise them by pulling funding and destroying them is kind of extreme. Right. How are you doing for time? Oh, I'm good. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't have any other stuff, so I'm good. Oh, you're you're not, you're not curing any other disease. Okay. Just the, just the the And the coronavirus. You're just just man the coronavirus and trying to solve, you know, the flu. Yeah. Yeah. No, talk to you about a uh, a follow-up to this at all the pandemic yeah. um 
I, I think there were some early discussions like a few months ago or before before March, like before it was really a big deal. But I think the whole film industry is kind of unsure of how they're going to do business and what they're going to do. So I haven't heard any concrete plans for a season two, but I really hope so because I feel like we'll have a lot of advancements on our flu vaccine by then, hopefully, and we'll have ideally a working COVID therapeutic slash cure that people can take um, for those that can't get a vaccine or the vaccine doesn't work on. Um, so it could be an interesting story to follow. And I feel like a lot of people are, you know, I'm, I'm oh, yeah, constantly, they're engaged with it right now for sure. Everybody's got it on their mind. Yeah. I, I well, get a lot of pings about it. The title will write itself. It's pandemic two hashtag. We were right. <laughs> so it's right. just like, yeah, you can have a you can have a successor to to, to the pan, first pandemic. Yeah, in the very last sentence of episode one, it's like an it's a video of Bill Gates giving a talk, and he says like, "When the next pandemic comes, we're not ready." And yeah. it's just it's just yeah, pretty on. crazy <laughs> to think that literally twenty four hours later it hit. <laughs> yeah, it, it's unreal. So surreal. So well, the interesting part will be like everything's starting to open up sports-wise in the states, right, and, and in Canada now, and that's going to be seeing if these leagues actually continue the season and finish it because it's, it's getting a little yeah. crazy already. Well, I just watched this tournament. I forget what it was called. There's some like professional basketball tournament with like um, American players that usually play in European leagues or they're retired or something. I don't know if you guys watched it, but it was like literally the only sporting event in the last six months. So like, I feel like a lot of people watched it. There's some Korean baseball going on. I've been on that. Yeah, there's not much going on. A little right bit now. of UFC. Yeah. But like, I guess it makes sense if you can just get everybody in the same hotel and test them every day and they have no contact with the outside yeah. world. I mean, maybe that's just how sports are now. It's just like no but, audience. But base, baseball's okay. not doing it. They're traveling. They start today. So baseball starts today, basketball next week, hockey next week, and then the NFL is the big thing. So it's chapter two for pandemic. For we we got to we're setting you up here. Yeah. Except for the Jays, they don't yeah, know where they're yeah. playing. Toronto, Toronto sports team <laughs> doesn't know where they're playing at all. I've actually resorted to watching um, mar marble racing. Do you guys watch yeah, that? I on that. I see that? Yeah. That was yeah. the first one that came out. It was the first one. Yeah. It is amazing. They have like an announcer and they do this really extensive like Lego yeah. stuff and they have different marbles and like teams of marbles. Like there's the cat's eye and like the, the, the dog. Oh, yeah. And then they're like, nice. you know, the tiger's yeah. eye. Awesome. Oh yeah. It's the announcers are, are off. Awesome. It's very like ESPN, the Ocho, like it might even <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like endless hours of basically if i have free time which these days hardly ever happens because my life is a mess these days but i'm either tie-dyeing or i'm watching marble racing yeah tie-dye is big big <laughs> right now too yeah tie-dye shirts the, and everything going on yep the two big uh two big netflix that we've been watching here up here in canada is one very informational yours or the one that you're a part of and the other one Gentlemen, which one have you watched? Oh, the the ti tiger. <laughs> yeah, tiger game, uh, right? So, <laughs> from one extreme to the other, it's I, a high I, quality I show. It. I definitely enjoyed it. The Michael Jordan one was a big one too. <laughs> that was that was the biggest one, Michael Jordan. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Touche. Yeah. Touche. So. It was like touché. the only thing to look forward to was six p.m. on Sundays. Watch the Michael Jordan show for a couple. Oh weeks. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, good time and that. Um, 
I, 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 guys, is there any other question that we have for Sarah? I don't. Uh, I, I mean, did you really name the pigs? All of the pigs. We, yeah. So we ran three <laughs> studies. Um, the first and the third study, they were all male, and for some reason, like calling male pigs pig names just like isn't very funny. And I guess it's like potentially sexist of me to call female pigs pig names, but I just, I just could not stop laughing. Um, <laughs> but we call them like version, we didn't name all of them because I think we could only think of 20 but it was like um, Hamon Biles, Pamela Anderson, Kim Kardashian <laughs> um, oh god there, Kate, yeah, Beyonce, Squiana, Katie Corky um, oh god I have a list somewhere we named about 20 of the 40 um, but they were really sweet. I, I would try to get them to like recognize their names because, you know, pigs are super smart. And like <laughs> the one with floppy ears with like a butterfly birthmark on her back, that was uh, Katie Porky. She was <laughs> she was really sweet. She had uh, blue eyes instead of brown eyes. That was the uh, tequila in Guatemala. Nice. Uh, the tequi well, they drink a lot of mezcal in Guatemala. Mm. Um, which is, I mean, it's mostly from Mexico, but it's really good. And then in Guatemala, they have this liquor called um, Quetzalteca, which is historically, it was like the moonshine of, of liquor. It was like the thing that people would make like in a barrel in the back of their house. And it would sometimes <laughs> make you blind and sometimes make you violent. And you could only get it at these cantinas that were super sketch. Although now it's like mass produced and it's made like any other liquor. So it's like fully distilled and safe. Um, but yeah, I've had a lot of Quetzalteca on a lot of, you know, Guatemalan adventures. So <laughs> bottles back in my nice. they also make Ron Zacapa, which is like that kind of famous rum brand that's grown at like high altitude sugarcane and um, expensive, but very smooth. Nasty um, hangover. A lot of sugar in it. Prob yeah, probably. <laughs> I haven't had too much. I've never been to Guada. <laughs> oh, Guada I, I don't really drink too much spiced rum because... I overdid it in college on what we called Ron Diaz made in um, Bloomington, Minnesota, not in the Bahamas. Oh, <laughs> I've never been to Guatemala, but you were standing on this one spot and it just was a gorgeous view, right? That was absolutely stunning. Oh, yeah, there's stunning. Guatemala is amazing because it's like the hidden gem of Central America in terms of like topology and geography because they have like lowland rainforests with like monkeys and those crazy big leaves and like dense forests. And there's Mayan ruins, kind of like in Mexico, but more secluded and more jungly. And there's also like desert-like areas. There's the beach. Um, and then there's the highlands, which is this, it's actually a large part of Guatemala. There's, it's just dotted with volcanoes. It's like the earth is just like burping this ancient like material out through Guatemala. And there's like the, there's like the crater that's thought to be the myth is like, that's where the dinosaurs went extinct or whatever. Um, it's like right near there. And yeah, there's just tons of volcanoes. I've hiked to the top of like eight or nine of them in Guatemala. And I've even seen a couple of, well, one of them I've seen it erupt multiple times and wow. it's just, it's breathtaking. I would highly recommend it. Like not right now, obviously, but Traveling in Central Central America is extremely underrated because it's relatively inexpensive and the people are really nice and 
Like, I don't, I, I just spoke Spanish since I was a kid because I learned it in school and not that I'm great at it, but it just like, it makes traveling in Guatemala so much more accessible when I can make friends with the people that live there and form connections and go on these crazy trips. I'm just, sometimes I sit back and I'm like, what is my life? I am so happy. Like, not that my life has been particularly easy or hard. It's just that my life took a very windy road and I'm grateful that I've had some amazing experiences with, especially with Guatemala and forming a community of friends there and obviously like seeing awesome stuff like volcanoes. <laughs> Hell, you're doing yeah, super important work, so it's even better. So <laughs> you're having a, a very effective life. Good for you. Now, now do you, uh, California's, I guess, going backwards now with the lockdown uh, from yeah. reading or in or some areas are. Do you ever go back? Is your family from Minnesota? Like, well, who do you have back in Minnesota? Oh. Did yeah. They, oh, I'm actually are, from. Are you a fan? Um, or where are you? I'm from originally? Wisconsin. Yeah. Okay, Wisconsin. Yeah. Okay. Just the Ron Diaz I drank in college was produced in Minnesota. Got it. <laughs> okay. So you're oh, a cheesehead yeah. Packer fan. There you yeah. go. <laughs> um, my family has been in Wisconsin for, um, gener- well, well, it depends on if it's my mom or my dad's side, but like Chicago and Wisconsin, basically for generations and. Um, yeah, Cheesehead through and through, Packer fan, Brewers fan. I went to, I did my undergrad at University of Wisconsin Madison, so I'm obviously a Badger fan. Um, How long I, is Aaron Rodgers sticking around now? <laughs> now that his, oh, yeah, his replacement's been drafted. Yeah, the other guy got drafted. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of worried because I, he's it's one of like, the best around. Like, do they think he's too old? I don't <laughs> understand. Like, he seems good to me. He was drafted when Brett Favre was younger, though, so that's the funny part. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All over again. Oh, God. I actually yeah. forgot that happened. I like, don't pay attention to any of that stuff at all. But now I'm remembering that day. I was like, my boyfriend was watching the draft and I was like doing some other thing. And that happened. And I was like, wait, what happened? And he's like, why do you even care? And I was like, wait, this seems, this is so, I don't get it. <laughs> why the hell are they draft a QB? Yeah. That's hilarious. So, do you get to go home? that often or you just stay in California or um, well typically I'll go home like two three times a year like Christmas and then usually there's one or two weddings and stuff to see family um, I'll fly home I've been out here for seven almost seven years now which is crazy I mean I'm in San Francisco and yeah I'll fly home like once in December January where it's like negative 20 degrees and then i'll fly home once or twice in the summer when it's 90 degrees and i get to experience the extremes of wisconsin and remind myself why why i'm living in <laughs> you live in california <laughs> in san francisco it's like between 55 and 70 every day and it really never gets warmer or colder Comfortable. i'm from northern ontario so originally oh, yeah. so We'd get up to minus oh, 40. Wow. That's our Celsius. 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 Although at minus 40, I think Celsius and Fahrenheit are like actually pretty similar. They are the same at minus yeah. 40. Yes. They are? Yeah. They zero out. Yeah. They zero out. Yeah, they become the exact same. Yeah. Oh, similar to our conversation we were having earlier about, you know, different medicines that you can make. Yeah. Oh, right. I've done yeah. some research on winterization and yeah, minus 40. All I know is that if it's minus 40, it's the kind of cold where the moisture in your nose and throat freezes when you breathe Freezes. In. 
and yeah. your eyelashes because your eyes tear and it freezes them. So you have to constantly. Yeah, it's like it's something I've tried to describe to people that are like from San Diego and stuff. And they're like, I don't they have no concept of what it feels like for your nasal tissues to freeze or like the moisture on them to freeze like while you're breathing in. It's just like how I felt like as a middle schooler, like waiting at the bus stop and it would be late. Like, yeah. <laughs> This would never be allowed these days, but I would walk to the bus stop and the bus would be like 30 minutes late and I would just stand out there freezing and my nose would get so bad. I hope kids don't have to do that these days. Or it's hilarious when you see someone who drives from uh, out west, like from Alberta or from Manitoba, and they have that plug coming out of their mm -hmm. car. And you have people <laughs> who are just, what's this for? It's like, oh, that's for your engine block to plug it in. Why? Because it'll freeze. Yep. What? Like, so like, it's just like, what you got to plug your car yeah it, it won't start if you don't plug it in yeah. and there's and if you go out west all the you, you there's there's outlets to plug in your car yeah we had that too block yeah. heaters yeah. you got block heaters i used to have to start my car in high school like 40 minutes before i'd go to school <laughs> it would warm up in time so it wouldn't stall <laughs> yeah good for gas that's cool oh that's hilarious i've only ever been to Wis um oshkosh. oh yeah i've been to oshkosh I flew in to see the air show. Can you guys tell I have a Wisconsin accent? No. Can you tell we have a Canadian yes, accent? Yes, I absolutely can. <laughs> <laughs> what gives it away? A boot? Yeah. A boot? A boot? A boot? I was going to say, have yeah, you heard a boot yet? Yeah. Hey, hey. I was like giggling internally when I heard that. I was like, oh, you guys are Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You got to giggle outwardly with us. Yeah. You can make fun of us. We're totally I think I've, I've suppressed 100%. my accent or I don't know if I ever had one. I just never thought of it until I lived in California for the first six months and I flew back for Christmas. And all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, my parents and my sister have an accent. Right. So, uh, yeah. See, we I couldn't pick up on your draws. Just a few of them, like a New York or Jersey. Yeah, yeah. Northeastern, but nothing nothing too crazy. I, I thought of it when no. you said Oshkosh, because i probably say Oshkosh, like Ashkosh, like very Wisconsin. Ashkosh. You do have a little Ashkosh. bit on Wisconsin. some of the words, yeah. Ashkosh. Soda. Soda. <laughs> California, California, Seattle, if you go up the, the West Coast, up to BC, like we they have very similar accents to Canadians. Like it's just we, I, I don't know what it is. So we blend in really, I don't know, but yeah, no, not that, not, not that strong. Yeah, you guys, it's not too extreme for sure. And I, I could have just come on strong being like, yeah, I went to the store and I got a bunch <laughs> of eggs in my bag and then I washed my car and then. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there you go. You got it. That's the Philly accent right there. That's the Philly accent. Yeah. Sounds almost like Boston. Boston. Oh, wicked smart. Wicked smart. Gotta go to Boston. Shout out. Shout out. Say it with me. Shout out. I like them apples. <laughs> we digress. Well, we're not gonna yes. we're not gonna keep you any longer because you have a lot more of important stuff to do than what we do for a living. So awesome um, having you. Awesome, so awesome, much. awesome. You have no idea how much this means yeah. to us. Super fun. Stay healthy, I'm neighbor. Actually what I'm doing after this is I'm going to set up an experiment in the lab that has to sit overnight. I'm developing um, a diagnostic assay for people that want to uh, donate convalescent sera for plasma donation for COVID. I'm basically developing mm. a diagnostic assay to figure out who would be the best donor and how to make the plasma therapy more effective. So that's, that's what, what I was doing. just going to go do. 
Nice. Yeah, we were just going to go do that myself. Similar. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I, can, I can bring the video and I can show you how, but I, I'm actually developing it for Guatemala. We're setting up like an IRB, which is like what they need to collect samples from patients. So then we can run a large clinical study with the methods that I'm developing. Well, you're going to have to come back on. That's what come back on again yeah, yeah, of course. This was super fun. This yeah. is this is awesome. Okay, so we're going to have you on again. We'll probably, Trevor, when do we report again? I have At no the end idea. of summer. We got to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. After Labor Day. Uh, yeah. Well, we should do like, um, we should record it. Well, wait, we're good until Labor Day, right? So we should record right around September. And then by that time, Sarah, you should have an update on everything that's going yeah, on. Yeah, right? we, by September, hopefully some of our flu studies will have started. Um, and we should be either starting or soon to be starting our clinical trials for our COVID antibody. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. okay, so then I'll be in contact with you and Melissa. Sounds good. And she'll coordinate your schedule, right? Like last yeah. time? And then we'll have you on again. We we would love to have you on as a guest. Yeah, again, for sure. You'd be great. Absolutely. Yeah, be awesome. Talk we more can Packer like, football. We can have fifty percent science and then fifty percent banter. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's yeah, their that's formula. Fair. I say it's better than one hundred percent banter. Yeah, normally, one hundred percent banter. But yeah, we'll bring tequila next time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So I will be, uh, so Brand Boulevard is our sponsor. Um, they're, they're a bunch of friends of ours that own um, a branding company. So they brand everything, like anything you can think of. Anyways, they donated um, a nice leather bound book for all of our Ooh. guests. So I will, um, what else? And a pen. Oh, and a pen. Um, and uh, I'll get, I guess, the, your your office address off of Melissa and then I'll, we'll. So we'll, we'll purely. FedEx it to you. Sounds good. Um, Thank you. There you go. Okay. I, I really appreciate that. I love notebooks and I really love nice notebooks. I like, usually I have these crappy ones that with like the lines like this with just the spirals, <laughs> but a nice notebook is, I will treasure it. Okay. You'll get a nice notebook. Don't you worry. We'll get that. And a nice pen. You got to have oh, a nice yeah. pen. You're curing diseases. So we'll get you like a Mont Blanc. There you go. Look at that you one. Know, a nice <laughs> Better call Collins so pen, huh? There you so go. Looks deluxe. It's comfy. Look at that. Nice, nice. We'll get that to her. Good God. <laughs> thank you so much, Sarah. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you to everyone who's listening. Please uh, share it on social media and all that jazz. Um, Josh, help us help you stay. Thanks so important. much, Sarah. Cheers, guys. Thank you all. Out. Talk to you next thank time. You. Thanks, Bye. Sarah. Hi, I'm Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. 
I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.